to Otaku No Radio's episode number 005, where we're going to be talking about the girl who leapt through time with my partner in crime and time-traveling ne'er-do-well, Jared Nelson. Hello. And returning Anna Gamer after so long an extended distance, Mr. Elliot Page. Returning? I thought I was exiled. What is this? Well, you know, we'll let you go back in after Brexit. <laughs> oh, oh no 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 more politics i'm done, I'm done. I'm out. I'm out. i i you know i felt the brexit line like leap to my brain when we were talking about exiling and i'm like no 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 won't do it won't do it uh, i can't blame you it's such a juicy line to grab on isn't it Come well on. you know you you've got a smorgasbord of shit you can say about what's going on over here so my seriously God. and let's be honest if we're going to you know exile to any country it's not going to be either of ours yeah we should probably all exile to the same place is <laughs> like the <laughs> optimal solution there i think vienna's quite nice this time of year <laughs> always wanted to visit austria <laughs> uh but anyway for those who have not seen this wonderful movie by uh Mamura Hasuda, uh, the plot summary is uh, 17-year-old Makoto Kono uh, gains the ability to leap backwards through time. She sets a, uh, she starts uh, you know, doing minimal things to improve her own life, like getting better grades and you know, not dying. Uh, and then she realizes uh, the past really isn't as simple as it seems, her actions as consequences. Um, and she starts about this, the, trying to write the snowball effect and write the future. Um, and this came out in 2006, so now we're 11 years past when it originally came out, and it's just an incredibly emotionally touching film, and I just want to hand it off to you guys. When did you first come into contact with this movie, and does it still hold up? Oh man, do you mind if I take the reins? Um, so I I roll this story out every time. So if anyone's listened to me in other media, you might roll your eyes at this point. But um, I first saw this film quite a few years ago. In fact, when it was had its UK premiere, um, I believe, and it was at the ICA in London, um, the Institute of Contemporary Arts, which has a pair of cinemas which are quite tiny. And the cinema in question that had this film, I don't think it was the, the premiere, honestly, um, but it had about four rows of seats and about and fit around 30 people at tops. So very intensely sort of, um, you know, uh, what's the word, personal and sort of very small space. And it was on a beat up 35 mil print that they'd stuck subtitles on. So it looked nice and aged. Um, and I was kind of I'd not really got into podcasting so much or anime in, in the intensity I have now. But I went there and saw it. And, you know, the cinema was quite half full and it just laid me out completely, especially because I was like two rows from the front had very quite intense um, sound system. And so the one thing I remember the most after I kind of got to the end and was a sobbing wreck was like a like what must have been like 11, 12 year old kid next to me looking utterly perplexed at me. Meanwhile, his dad is also choking back tears. Meanwhile, this kid is completely untouched by it and just thinks I'm some weirdo who's taking up space. Um, but how yeah, that's my kind. That? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of my story of how I came into this thing was having like a bit too much money and time, so I went to London and kind of blew me away. And it still kind of um, endures with me to this day. Um, I watched it obviously for this podcast recording, but I also had the honour of seeing it in the cinema again um, in Edinburgh um, at the Scotland Oz Anime Film Festival last November, where I got to see it again. And you know, 
something got in my eyes again and I had to endure all my friends around me ribbing me and going, oh, you're right there. It's like, shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> but no, it still works. Like after like what must be like six viewings, seven viewings easily at this point. So, yeah, I'm kind of way in for this film. <laughs> well, for my part, um, I've kind of kept it close to my vest for the purposes of recording the podcast. But I forget, Ink, if you suggested this this topic we cover or if I did I, I don't remember but either way this is one of the Hosoda films I have not seen so I actually watched it for the first time in preparation for the podcast and uh, ended up watching it like three times uh, like very close together I was just like okay it's done all right like start it again uh, which doesn't happen for me very often I, I tend to watch something once and sort of internalize it as much as I can during that time and I revisit it if I feel like it but Nope, I, uh, I I might watch it again today. Who knows? <laughs> oh, that's sorry to jump in, but that's fascinating because like this was my first Asoda film, and I feel like I've been chasing it since, mm. um, at least from my point of view. Whereas you've seen other Asoda films, so I'm very curious to see what how you feel it stacks up. Maybe I'm jumping ahead in our sort of plan here, but well, uh, just I'm really for... I'm really interested to hear what you think about it as you watched other Asoda films first. Yeah, for well, for context, mm. Summer Wars was the first Asoda film I'd ever seen. And then um, I uh, reviewed The Boy and the Beast for uh, Anime Secret Santa. I own Wolf Children, but haven't watched it yet, which is just on my – it's my fault. I should wa- definitely watch that. Um, so I've, I've had a couple of exposures to him before. I haven't seen any of his Digimon movies, but, uh, you know, that's um, – this, this was definitely – you know, I could not help but watch this in the context of – the other works I've seen and understanding that this was really his first kind of outing uh, in a, you know, not adapting a children's property or giant manga uh, property kind of kind of way. So, you know, maybe I guess we call this his first, you know, Hosoda film, I guess. Uh, but, yeah, I couldn't help but watch it and, and be struck by the other experiences I've had and, and kind of walk backwards his his development as a as a director and a creator uh from that yeah, this was my uh, first toast of the film as well and uh this is actually why summer wars came out i i just ran to the theaters uh it's the it's incredible just how natural and that's what i think i like about most of his work most uh, and how much of his director directorial hand is in this i'm not sure but how real the characters come across and that's got to be largely in decisions and storyboard and editing and uh, the direction of voice acting. But my God, these are real, real kids. Mm, definitely. Um, as a quick side note, I looked up um, uh, Makoto, the main character's voice actress, and she's done like nothing else. She did like a part in Summer Wars, but in the realm of anime, she hasn't done anything else, which seems like a colossal waste. Um, really but then is. again, this is this is kind of her perfect role, which makes it a bizarre thing of like, oh, they plucked her for this role and nothing else has come out. What actually happened? What actually happened was the voice actress came back from the future after seeing someone else do <laughs> such a horrible job in this film and realized, no, I have to do this role. <laughs> oh, that'd be a lovely um, tell-all book to have, wouldn't it? <laughs> I time traveled to save a film. Is that in the commentary? I was I was looking over the the cast. Um, the cast and, and what they've done and it pretty much seems like universally you know with maybe an exception here or there um they they're all like actual 
uh, drama actors or, or comedic actors uh, and not voice actors. So that that's a that was that was interesting that they that they went that route. Um, but you know the strength of the performances overall is just phenomenal. I think in particular, like um, again, not heaping more praise on, but Makoto's um, voice actress, like I think she has a cadence in her sort of delivery, which is not really common to anime, or is at least it's not in the general sort of forgive the broad brush tarring here, but the sort of anime voice actor sort of cadence and anime voice, whereas she's a lot more sort of rambly, I suppose, which actually works really well, especially because a lot of it, there's quite a lot of monologue in this, especially at the start when it's setting everything up and you think, yeah, this works. Like this is, this is a person, Like this is totally what people do. Like even while they're gooning it up on the screen. Yeah. That, uh, that even her first, her first line, which is actually just a scream, uh, you know, when she when she wakes, the first non-monologued line, just waking up from that dream, and just going, ah, <laughs> it's so perfect. Not only for the, the the delivery, but the setup, just having that little sister watching her sleep in and be late. When I was watching the commentary, um, the, there's two different commentaries that come on the Funimation Blu-ray. Um, one is with the voice cast, and Hosoda said during during that commentary, you know as um uh what was her name i'm trying to remember i'm trying to remember the actual actual actress's name but um the voice actress that played uh makoto um naka risa naka um she according to hosoda it, it took her a little bit to get actually into the groove of the character and he was impressed how over the five days of recording she she sort of ultimately became the character and the voice actress who was also in the commentary kind of mentioned that you know she she really felt like makoto was her in a lot of ways like just personality wise and and they they just had a lot in common and i i think that might have lended itself to some of just the the natural delivery and the the authenticity really that we get in her performance throughout the film because it, it's really just fascinating yeah def you definitely get that especially because it feels like like again i'm gonna be doing a lot of broad tarring but like you know it doesn't feel like all the characters in the film are characters there's a genuine like not just you know place chess pieces almost but there's a genuine rapport there like you've got the main three characters you've got makoto you've got her delinquent friend jackie and you've got the like built out hospital dude um kosuke and they just goon it up for the entire thing and it's like yeah they're all great like everyone just kind of is a character um in a way that kind of works very effortlessly that there, there isn't like that outside of that initial monologue which gets blended in very carefully you never get a character sitting down and going this is my deal here's my like five minute introductory sequence because right. there's well there's no time for it cause it's a film but also there's no need for it because it just kind of effortlessly massages everything together um, especially, especially for the introduction, which like, I always forget how short the intro is and yet how good it is and how packed it is because it's like, like 14 minutes until Makoto quote dies and then the plot goes on from there, like, and off it goes into the actual main plot, which kind of happens pretty fast. Yeah, it really does kind of drop you right into the plot in a in a sort of a shocking way, obviously. Um, you know, and and that was that was kind of my reaction to it too, just just watching it the. For that first time you know it's like okay this is a very nice 
slice of lifey film, you know, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> like the plot started happening and I'm like, okay, now I'm I'm in. I'm I'm all in. It didn't grab me by the neck like right away. It does uh, at a certain stage and um just the authenticity and the the way that the characters aren't really they're not over-designed, they're not overly anime, you know, speaking of broad brushes. Um, they're, they're not overly anime. They feel like these could be real kids in a real high school, you know, in mid two thousands Japan and living there at the time that this came out. Cause I saw like, it came out like right before I got over there and I started seeing posters for it when I was walking about getting familiar with my, my new surroundings. And it's like, Oh, well, that that's a cool poster. But having lived in that, that high school and, Japanese school kid kind of world in a different sort of way. It it really just struck me how authentic everything was about the the design of the school and the the, the design of the characters and the way that they are they're delivered on screen. And if I'm if I'm going to join in with broad brush painting, I, I got to say the the overall feel of the film visually is very organic. Most of the characters are this balance of lack in detail and very expression based, which is kind of a, a weird balance to strike, but it's not like, you know, the cookie cutter anime these days, everything's very, I want to say warm. All, all the characters have very defined movements, uh, very personalized movements. You know, you could almost attribute certain mannerisms to certain characters, which is kind of amazing. And the world around them, by contrast, is very detailed at most points. So it kind of sets up this weird contrast of plain and detailed and just sort of really makes you, I don't know if that, if, if that makes you, makes the characters an easier palette to put yourself on and sort of invest yourself in these characters all the more. But I kind of felt like that. I think it definitely helps make them more expressive because to name drop, the characters are designed by uh, Yoshiki Satomoto, who did Evangelion. And so Magato looks slightly Shinji-ish. Thankfully, mm. less of a jerk. Um, but the one thing <laughs> well, I like about it... thanks for the movie for me now. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to do this picture. <laughs> hey, man, dude, you haven't bought 14 volumes of his Evangelion manga. Like, holy moly. Um, talk, about, talk about a seven-volume-long ending. The main point I wanted to make <laughs> before I distracted myself is that the characters... The one thing I like about the characters, in fact, all the cast, is that this is a bit of a gripe about modern anime, but there isn't this slavish attention to detail on the school uniform where everyone just has their clothing and there's like, there's an outline to the characters. Like there's kind of a black outline to the actual character's expression, to the character portraits, but their outfits are just kind of part of them and they're just different color. So like, especially for the three main characters, like one of them wears like a, like a, like a, just a sleeveless vest, like it's pinkish sleeveless vest and the other two wear shirts and like outside of a few very carefully chosen details, there's not much like definition to them. And so the gap, like where the body ends and the shirt or the clothing begins, is kind of always fluid. And it kind of allows for a very seamless ability for them to motion and to move around. So there's no need. To, they're constantly not getting caught up on their own clothing, which sounds a bit strange. But like it's a very expressive thing where they can just have a character swing their head around and it doesn't become this really laborious thing for them to have to shift clothing about. It's just like, oh, I'll tweak the white chunk of this person's outline along, and that'll totally work. And you know what that actually reminded me of was the uh, the rotoscoping in Flowers of Evil. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. 
because there's just that there's there's times when they don't even bother you know with faces of people in the background and you know that that same sameness in the four characters just comes through and, and manages that fluidity you mentioned it's really crazy how everyone how quite a few people bag on flowers of evil for that where it's like no this is a there's a point to this you might not agree with it but there's a stylistic point to this existing it's not it doesn't have to be bad so yeah it's, it's so funny that you mentioned flowers of evil inc hosoda in the commentary talks in the animation commentary talks about them using this um he calls it a shadowless art style where the, the characters have this really clean look there's not a lot of shading depth into the character images themselves as they're moving through backgrounds so like they're still interacting with the world and moving through shadows in like a correct plausible way but there's just not a lot of shading detail and depth in the characters themselves so it gives it more of a flatter look and i was trying to think of where has that been used and flowers of evil sprang to mind for me as well although you know such a different <laughs> subject matter entirely but uh, did do you guys feel like the shadowless i guess flat approach was that jarring to you guys it was to me a little bit at first um i feel like it <laughs> is jarring especially when you come hot off of like watching current season anime or you know when, when you've suffused yourself in lots of other anime which just does detail kind of out the way it, like it does other forms of detail and then you come to this and for the first five minutes you're like whoa these characters almost seem like felt cutouts at times and it's just like mm. here's the character they're flat they're moving in this very lavishly detailed like science lab but after about a few a few minutes it it does fade into the background but it is very different from my from my ramble earlier i definitely think it's like one of the strengths of the film in fact is because it can just get away with but there's no need to constantly shift shading on a character's face when they're moving they can just move and express like all over the shop without having to go overboard with it and it lets them focus more i think on fluidity of the animation the movements and the just the fluidity of of the characters you interacting and doing things uh my, like one of my favorite things is is all of the ketchiboda scenes where they're all like throwing the ball the baseball around and you you see each of the characters has their own style of movement like Chiaki has this very he hasn't been playing baseball that long kind of kind of thing like he doesn't have a very polished approach Bakoto has this very sort of girly throw that she does and then Kosuke because you know he's like the cool together guy he looks like he's played some baseball and you know each of them in their own way the motions they do are so fluid in those scenes and I, I just I love those scenes for that but you really can see that throughout the film there's a very there's a very soft sort of animation style you know everything there's not really any bold lines or anything with the characters and the way that they're animated move they move not in a floaty way but just in sort of a soft way. It's hard. It's hard for me to describe beyond that. It's one thing I really love about the film is just the, the the softness, and I think that comes from that art style that they chose. That also uh, to put it to put some emotional context behind that art style is it makes everyone bright, and that puts the emphasis on the lighting on the characters instead of just using shadow to define depth and perception, but actually in terms of tone, in terms of emotion during scenes. Notice that the the kids are a lot brighter when they're happier. The lighting is a lot darker when it's a little more somber or uh, pensive. I really enjoyed that, and having the characters be starkly different from the backgrounds really didn't throw me for much. 
because I, I just really enjoyed having them distinct from the background. I don't know why, but it just worked off the bat for me. Mm. It definitely helps in some of the more emotional scenes when, like, you get a lot of individual frames. I, again, I'm not very good on animation terms. Someone's going to come and string me up for not knowing terminology. <coughs> but th- there's more frames available there, and so they use it to great effect, and they can use it focusing on the elements that matter, like, like for example, when a character is starting to tear up and start to have a cry, mm. like they go frigging all out on it because you just get all the scrunching up and everything shifting around because they can just keep like it. I think to go back to your soft animation style, Jared, like every frame kind of changes quite a lot. But mm. when it's in motion and aggregated, it works out. It's like when you have like you say like when you have like very smeary animation, not quite as much, but like. Mm. Like there's a lot of change between each. If you differenced every single frame between each other, it looked bananas. But in motion, it's like, oh, there's a lot going on here. Like there's a lot of motion involved. Yeah. Like this person, this person is going for it. And I think that's what actually what makes the first initial train impact scene so embeds it so much in the viewer's head, because that is some fast and fluid animation. And when you when you when you cut that with the the still scenes of like the little elves or gnomes coming out on that clock uh, where everything's sort of still but moving smoothly as opposed to this very rough and rushed point of view almost animation that that really just sets it in the viewer's head and when that scene repeats in its various forms throughout the movie it just brings you right back there and it carries the emotional impact of that rush and all that can imply because sometimes it's a feeling of excitement sometimes it's a feeling of dread and I, I just loved how they pulled that off. Can we, we've touched on it a little bit, but can we gush over the backgrounds for just a minute? Because the backgrounds in this movie are just stunning. It's, it's really crazy because like, I so last year I got to, I had the pleasure of watching both um, Your Name and A Silent Voice in a cinema. And those have some pretty stonking great backgrounds. Like, I mean, one's a Shinkai film, one's from KyoAni, Kyo's a Breeze they have a different take on what is very pretty but like this film still even though it's from a decade ago still totally punches at the same weight if if in some ways kind of i don't know like maybe even better i'm not sure like there seems to be more direction in this film especially because it has like a economy of places um which i i have an entire thesis on i'll get to later but like um like i feel like it's still totally like punches really heavy in the yep we've got a film budget we're gonna you know smack it all into these scenes and you can just see all of it so mm. yeah sorry i kind of got a bit, a little bit over myself and couldn't really explain it but yeah no i i think i get what you're saying um ink what do you think about the backgrounds i i, I lost myself in the multiple points uh, and you could see largely towards the end of the movie they really started to bring up the waterworks because there were all these lavish sunsets and uh, fields which we've sat in so many times with the characters but now they're just lush and interacting with the characters as opposed to being uh, backed by them or serving as backgrounds for them and yeah colors were perfect the the level of detail was perfect and even even some of the 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 angles and use of the lighting in like say the classrooms where the storage room for that that biology classroom where you had that one window that's inserting this 45 degree angle of light that's showcasing this skeleton that's up on top of a, a bookshelf 
mm. and, it, and that's used multiple times once to highlight uh, Makoto, uh, who's hiding on the floor right there. It's just a horrible bit of foreshadowing. <laughs> but yeah, I, it, I, I just found the backgrounds absolutely wonderful because if you're going to have characters that contrasted, it, it needed to be that detailed. Yeah, I feel like the science room in particular, you hit on really that, just something that came to mind, is you get you get a lot of static shots of that space, almost in a very static camera way, where you have like a, a ceiling shot looking down, and you have a shot of like the second doorway, which is actually locked, and it, it sort of shows you very static shots of individual places in that room, but in aggregate, it makes a very good, like sort of, you know exactly the 360 degree layout of that space without it actually moving the camera through at any point it to drag it down almost it reminds me it reminded me vaguely of resident evil like the first ones when you had the whole like catcom static camera tank control thing Mm. where you just get shots of a location as you move between camera points thankfully it's a lot nicer looking than resident evil was and also less zombies um (laughs) but that's but that's what i mean is you get these static you get these static shots and you get the three-dimensionality of the space from that. Um, getting a bit above myself here, but one thing I want to mention about backdrops that just hit me as well while you were mentioning is uh, when Makoto first goes back in time um, to go and get a dessert, um, because what else are you going to do? You have an outside shot looking in of their house, and it's just a two-direct... It's just It looks 2D because it's a flat plane, but Makoto moves inside and around the space constantly while eating pudding, and he's sort of wandering around the space, padding around. You can hear the footsteps. And it just works marvelously to give that space, like, depth. Mm-hmm. Because it's going, she's going in and out, around. You, you don't know what that space is like, but after that, you do. Because she's moving in and around it so much. That's kind an of excellent like, point. I love that scene because all of the visual elements I love about this movie are all present in that one scene. The, the other way I love the backgrounds is the, the, the amount of movement in them. These these are not just single shot backgrounds in most cases. They're like two or three layers to them. Mm-hmm. And some of my favorite favorite scenes, just watching the film, uh, how it how it acts visually, is scenes where people are just passing from left to right and right to left behind the main characters on bikes or walking or running in school teams. And it's just awesome to just see all this action behind the movie. It's it's a real world. Like there are creatures inhabiting it. And there's one scene in particular, I think it's the first time she actively tries to leap forward or leap backwards in time, where she's running up a hill, and while she's doing so, there's a first a one person walking and then uh, from right to left, and then a per- one person on a bike going from left to right, and then a whole gang of school kids uh, running uh, from right to, re- right to left for like a school club or whatever. Uh, and then she comes over the top of the hill running towards the camera and this is all one static shot so the camera's not moving it's just focusing up the, up the, up the hill and she comes down running and one more person passes behind her as she's in front of the main road that everyone's been using and it's just such a it's such a wonderful depth of shot sort of like oh, yeah. that sort of like that entrance and entry into that uh, house but this is an open field and I loved how, how they created that it's it's great as well because there's not really anything to. See. It sounds weird, but there's not much to see in that because you, like three quarters of the shot is is just grassy bank, mm. but because it hangs there, you know it's important. And you know, 
I feel that's an important scene as well because you've followed Makoto's like train of thought with her, and you're like, well, she's got to try this, hasn't she? Hasn't she? And then when this when the the shot holds, you're like, oh, here we go. This is go time, isn't it? Like this is when it's going to happen. I I just need a gift compilation of every time she like is rolling into a ball and like popping <laughs> up into a scene. Like I just I, I need I need that that gif like desperately. That, the movie has an amazing like um, dedication to head trauma. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and emotional yeah, trauma. She she I think she hits her head on something almost every time she leaps. Which yeah, you've gotta, I mean, you've gotta wonder what that's doing to her. I'm pretty sure it nearly is every single time, which is one of these things where it, like I feel like if they ever mentioned that in the film, it would kill it stone dead. But because they don't, it's great. Yeah. So. It's so her too. It's it's just that's exactly how you'd imagine her showing up. There's that one scene um, right just after uh, who is it? Chiaki asks her out for the first time, and she goes back to that intersection, kind of hastily and you know flustered, mm. and she you you hear her head hit that metal post, and like her friends literally just saw her roll in and hit her head and she stands up as if you know this is just how she has always been in that scene and they they just legitimately ask like are you okay and that's because you hear her head hit that post so hard <laughs> and it just relays everything that needs to be said don't mind me i'm avoiding confession bye <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I love I love that bit. Just to kind of talk about, I mean, the bit where Makoto like, kind of, I mean, no time travel with powers. Talk story would be complete about someone abusing their powers for really stupid means. But I always love that conceit. It this is a real weird UK perhaps centric thing, but it reminds me of so many like kid comes into powers, abuses them, learns very quickly not to, then decide, then learns lessons um, kind of stories. There's like a similar sort of story that was on kids TV when I was growing up called Bernard's Watch, which was a kid's book uh, adapted from where kid finds an old pocket watch and from in an antique store and he can then pause time using it, but for like a very limited amount of time. And the watch, like the antique shop owner becomes his like you know jiminy crockett sort of thing jiminy cricket sort of character i love those kind of stories because it is just like the kid the, the person in question is allowed to have some rope with it like they're allowed to goon about with it but when it starts to get a bit intense they then have to deal with oh oh no like i can't lark about with this or if i do i have to reckon with the consequences right. and then like because like, the entire like almost second half of the film is very much like character trying to get out of bad situations and making things aggressively worse for herself in multiple ways because of that, um, which is kind of, I don't know, it's still, it's still kind of painful to watch in some ways because, you know, she knows she's messed up, but at that point she's so scared of messing things up again to another intense degree that she's now paralyzed. So it's kind of messing stuff up worse, which is totally a typical teenager. But I, I love the way that's set up too, because uh, the auntie witch character brings up the this time leaping almost as like a rite of passage. She's like, "Oh, that happens to girls your age." That's still the best line. <laughs> it's so casual, and you know, it's this motherly aspect of that, that auntie witch, and how she's relaying just sort of that handed down knowledge of this supernatural capability as if it's nothing and then you know letting makoto uh, letting makoto have her fun with it 
And then sliding in that line, and this is my favorite line of the movie, is like, well, what if your fun is hurting someone else? And that's that's the turning point of Makoto's head, where she actually starts considering other people and watching around her. There's the whole and, plot question of the movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. But it's 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 delivered with it's it's delivered exactly as a mother would, mm-hmm. and it's not over narration. It's just motherly advice. And yeah. It's, so perfect. I think it almost it... also might bear some explanation that the the movie itself is a loose sequel to the original uh, novel that's from the 60s. And in that novel, the Auntie Witch is the girl leaping through time. So uh, there's there's that connection in the movie that, you know, unless you actually look it up and know, you'd never know. But I think in both, if you know or don't know, I think both of the you know, just the casual way it's brought up, you know, it's it's still a very effective scene, and it's it's really um, just her whole attitude about it was very was very interesting. You know, she she doesn't really she doesn't really try to 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 push Makoto to do one thing or another. She she just sort of lays the facts out there, lays some things out there for her to think about, and then steps away, which is you know from a parenting perspective probably a good way to handle a teenager, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I feel, I feel like in aggregate, all the scenes with Auntie Witch kind of work out really well because it kind of lets you know from the jump, like, hey, Auntie knows more than she's letting on, but we're not going to give you the luxury or the boredom, frankly, of having her sit down and have a backstory flashback because, mm-hmm. like, even in a story with, like, even in a story with time travel, flashbacks are still the pits. Um, so let's just get on with it, and like, we'll show that little photo she has, and we'll have her be blasé and actually instruct Makoto, and then we can step back and just go, "Yes, there's all you need. Like, you'll figure out the rest, dear mm. dear watcher." How about the use of CG in the film, guys? Because it it does it does show up, but it's not like um, it's not like say Summer Wars, <laughs> where no, it's actually, everywhere. Actually. I, I will take you to point on that because I loved uh, I loved the CG Otherworld, which is uh, reminiscent. If you if you've seen Summer Wars and this is your first time watching The Girl Who Loved Your Time, something will seem very familiar about those transitions or, or mm-hmm. the the middle time between leaps, uh, where she's like going up against this background of uh, a red ribbon and uh, uh, gear work in the background. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all very that internet world of summer wars and it works because it's, it's not part of that world. It's the underpinnings and it's set off visually as very different, but it, it, I totally just drew that parallel. As soon as I saw it, I was like, wow. Okay. Yeah. He's, he, he loves using this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's very, it, in, in the girl who Left through time, I think that the use of the CG overall is very uh, understated. There's not a lot of points where you just, go oh that's so obviously cg and i don't think it's used in a very bad way and like even you know again this being a 2006 film the the cg in the film including that uh, transitory space between leaps i thought was was pretty pretty good yeah i feel that i feel that especially works because it's always motion like there's no stopping mm-hmm. like it just goes like it's just nope we we're not going to slow down we need to keep this moving because else you'll see the seams and that would kill the momentum of the fit of the of it quite literally and metaphorically obviously but then you have makoto screaming the whole time which also helps because it mm-hmm. like push, pushes you along um through that transitory space and also it doesn't need to and after it's done that it doesn't need to keep doing it except when it really wants to show you the in-between space again or you know the clock world where like it's it doesn't it doesn't 
make too much of it where it's just like yes this is the in-between space this is the gap we don't need to worry about this now like this is not something we have to interact with or make a rule set around like that's kind of the one the one, one of the annoying things about these sort of things is when they like oh we need to have rules in place for this and it's like no don't just just do what you need to directorially to make the get the point across uh the one thing i will say about the cg is there's a sweet bead curtain using cg mm. which just about works but every time i see it i'm like yep that's a mid 2000 CGB <laughs> So I can go download that and put it in Blender right now. Um, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not being mean about it. It's just kind of yeah. funny when it's like, oh, it's CG. Okay, fair enough. What uh, is what is it about CG that really just brings you out of the film? Because as old as the animation can be, like you can still appreciate the character of it. Mm-hmm. But the older CG gets, it just seems to drag everything down with it. I think it depends entirely on what they're using the CG for. Like even ropey old CG can look good. Like if you're very careful in using it. I mean, obviously the one thing that's always a nightmare is when you have CG, like which is used for humans and then the motion looks atrocious mm. and it's just immediately dumps you out of it. At least for me, where it's just like, Oh, oh no, what have you done? Like, this is awful. And you've got to be careful how you bound it. Like, this is a more recent case, but for both for the first two Love Live seasons, it does a very criminal thing to my mind where it jumps between CG and live action, like like hand drawn animation in the same scenes. And it, it doesn't mix them on the same sort of shot, but it will jump between shot to shot where like, oh, this one's real animation. This one's CG. And the difference is torturous because it's like, oh, good bit, bad bit, good bit, bad bit, good bit. <laughs> and then... And when you're already like struggling to watch this stupid idol cartoon that you, you sign up to review, it's just like, oh man, I, oh, please just put me on the ground and cover me in dirt. Like, what is this? <laughs> I'm only watching this show for the shipping. So yeah, it gets exhausting. I, I think for me that the CG aspects of it, it's kind of like video game graphics technology. So, you know, you can go back and you can look at like Nintendo Entertainment System or Sega Master System and go, Yep, yep, that's really old, very uh, rudimentary-looking graphics when you compare it to today. And but then like, and it, but it has like a charm to it. But then you get like into that kind of transitory stage where you're at like the the N64 and the Sega Saturn and like the first PlayStation, and you're kind of like, yeah, revisiting that. Yep, it looks like garbage. <laughs> and yeah, so I... like CG like, animation kind of feels the same to me. Yeah, it's a very big transitory step. I mean, remember when they switched to DigiPaint, like, instead of cell animation, and there's a good bit there where there's lots of shows which look ropey as nuts because they hadn't quite figured it out. Um, But no, I think the CG works well in this because most of the time you're not realizing it's CG unless you're eyeballing it. I I mean, like, you've got the little gnomes, but they're they're a little sort of musical chime thing, so why would you ever think that's weird for them to be CG? Mm. So And those are also constantly in motion, and so they... You know, or just about, so they look a little less unobtrusive. You don't, you don't get to, you don't have too many long lingering shots on them. Um, I, I think that, you know, to your earlier point, Elliot, I think that they they just really had a very intelligent sense of how to use CG and not cause it to trip up the rest of the production. That and the other aggregate animation uh, aspects are so strong, it kind of, kind of, kind of you know, outshines any any CG problems it could have otherwise. What I, what I wanted to speak to uh, also stems from Elliot's comment about tripping up the film and the film never stopping. But there is one excellent scene where the film literally stops everything except for uh, two of the main characters. And 
I found myself loving that because, and I, I don't know what type of animation was used because I really couldn't tell whether they were using CG or just literally um, rotating a hand-drawn photo in, in a computer, and I'm not sure what that would be called. Are you talking about the one with the Shibuya crossing? Yeah, well, there's that. There's uh, there's several still shots of implied motion, and that's why it works so well. There's just the still world where everything stops, you know, for its what thirty second, uh, thirty second mannequin. All thing. of all of the characters in that shot, I, just from the animation commentary I, I, I watched, all of the mm. characters in that shot are drawn. Okay. Like, like at just at different points, they're all drawn. Yeah. But there there's also stills of like a, a glass of water being poured. And like the water just coming into the glass and swirling around the bottom, but that glass is actually rotating very slowly, so you can actually see different angles of the water, and that water looks so bloody real and so good. Um, and it, 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 it I, I sat there and I'm like, that has to be CG, but it, it just looks so damn beautiful. And uh, all of all of the the art involved in the motion of things. There's soccer balls just being kicked because you see little bits of dirt very realistically flying up from shoes and, you know, scuff marks on the ball. And all of these things just seem very real and very uh, in motion but stopped. And you have to hand it to the artists on the background for that. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of detail just put into the... Just not only just the backgrounds, where I'm thinking about in the classroom, there's like pieces of paper on the floor, and you know, just just random little touches. But then also, the the loving attention to detail that that the objects in motion have. A lot of like one one thing that sprang to mind is, you know, and I guess this could have been CG, but they they decided not to. Was the scene where the guy has the fire extinguisher and he's spraying it on people. Oh man, <laughs> that's that's all. All of that mist is all drawn. Like none of that is none really? of that is CG at all. And there's no image processing used in the film at all either. So all of the light and the color choices that the the key animators chose from scene to scene, from storyboard to storyboard, those are those are all just natural. Like they're there's they didn't try to sync it up or anything. So. Again, just the animation direction and and their their eye to keep everything in continuity just amazing for what they did with this thing. Yeah, I think especially for the the fire extinguisher because that thing shows up um, more times than you'd think, um, perhaps too much. <laughs> um, at least for the case, at least for the sanity of our characters. But like each time it comes out, there's a very different like um, like intent to its use almost. That sounds a bit of a weird way of putting it, but there's. There's a different like set of circumstances around the fire extinguisher, and so each time it's like a different. It, it has a different almost look to it and how it's being used. With like you say, the mist. Like there's something very different going on each time, um, which makes it kind of intense, um, which really helps because it's like. So I'm gonna I'm gonna quickly divert horribly into my personal thesis for this film, which is why I think it works so well, is that there's a really careful. And I'd like to hear you guys' thoughts if you think I'm off on my own frigging cloud here. But there's a very careful conservation of elements at play in the film where there's a very set number of characters, there's a very set number of places involved, there's a very set number of actual finite relationships and interrelations going on. And there's also a conservation of events. Like there is 
cycling down a hill there is avoiding confession there is throwing catch ball um at a baseball park there is you know after school chores when you've got to take take the books to the science office like there's because it's a time travel story there's eating pudding um because it's a time travel story it's very carefully meeting out and reusing these events with different function around them and also different intent and weight where it's like okay we can do this differently now and that's what we're going to do because it's a time travel story and someone is exerting pressure on the actual timeline um to do that and so it has a very and so it lays everything out quite quickly almost and actually it gives you all the bits and pieces right from the off like it gives you all the different characters and their relationships and their desires almost like their like desired relationships and it lays that all out for you and it goes right we're now going to spend the rest of the film rearranging all that into different shapes while the main character has to deal with the fact that she's the one who's basically kicking it every single time to get a different result popping out and that's what i like about it especially because like like the very the, the pivotal final like climax of the film is a direct callback to the one of the very first important elements of the film and through that it just keeps every element down because like a time travel or time loop story is very easy to just ask Paul your way out of and be really unsatisfying. Mm. Um, this is a bit of a mean jab, but like um, Higurashi no Naku Koroni, the like um, original light novel, no um, visual novel like set and also the anime, like the way it actually resolves its own time skip is like an ass pool that I won't go into because it's kind of mean if I just spelled it out here. Um, un- unannounced spoiler. But like, I like the fact that the film has a very limited amount of stuff, but then it just plays around with it constantly. Maybe maybe it's just me extrapolating too far. But do you guys think that's in play, or am I kind of going bananas on that? I think that's what makes this movie rather poetic, is you know its level of constraint and how it reuses its own images and how it does. Uh, like you said, like the, the, the reuse of the mist I didn't pick up on, actually, but the reuse of the actual fire extinguisher... Uh, and what, what you're saying is perfectly uh, right, uh, but yeah, it, it, the new, the new context given to these objects and these things through each experience that is undone or rewound, um, it makes total sense because you're gaining experience and then you know learning from it and re-implementing it. So why shouldn't things take on different aspects, not only the characters but the the uh, p- the set pieces. And I think that was really wonderful. And that hit me, uh, actually, when the fire extinguisher hit uh, Makoto. (laughs) It's like, wow, this was something that was, you know, sort of a silly gag laugh at first and then uh, used to torment uh, someone else second and then is now being his physical object of hurt. You just get that snowball effect and that parallels what the film does. Yeah, I think that in this kind of narrative, if you're going to expand time, you, in, in order to be effective, when you expand time, you have to conserve space. And that is essentially what they've done with this film. Um, you know, all of the, like you've said, all of the locations, the characters, you know, key events that happen in the film, by and large, are, are all set up pretty, pretty early uh, in the film. And then the challenge from a storytelling perspective comes in how can I, you know, play with these, with these set pieces and, and, and twist them around in just the right way to, to continue to have a strong forward motion in the film and, and have a satisfying, uh, 
conclusion at the end, I think they did a really good job of that. So the 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 conservation of elements theory that you've come up with, I think I think is very is very true. And I, I think for time travel stories in particular, you have to be very cognizant of of the the space the amount of space that you're using because if you if you try to be too expansive with it you know you really you you lose a lot of the real value of time travel which is going back and revisiting events that have already happened and and seeing what happens if you do them differently mm. um you know so so yeah i i very much agree with you yeah i think it really helps because you're never what you're never really asking what's Makoto doing this time? Because it's showing you, like, you can kind of assume that everything else is the same and it never once needs to pull out anything cheap like, oh, three days earlier, because it, like, shows you that naturally. And it uses um, that anticipation, too. Like, you, like when you see her and her friend walking through the courtyard, you know you're about to come to the scene where the dude gets flung into the tree. You know, you just know because they've, they've trained you to say, okay, well, when you're in this scene, you know what's about to happen. So yeah. the, the anticipation becomes, well, what's about to happen differently? And what I like really, and how the film pulls this off, is it doesn't replicate the shot. So you, 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 you're aware of your surroundings through motions and the characters and their interactions. And the setting in times is cropped super close to the characters, but you know what's going to happen because you've gotten uh, shots previous of you know that tree with that shadow. And you kind of know that tree with shadow because it's the only one in the film like that. So, you know, conservation of elements pulling it off. And then in the very, one of the scenes close to the end of the movie, uh, something a little a little childish, but I, I really liked it nonetheless, was when down near the grassy bank uh, where she, uh, Makoto, did her initial jump, um, that scene is also there, but not replicated because she's finally managed to iron things out. And there's uh, three kids who were commenting on her jump initially that are still down there, but now they're playing and removed from the main character. And you know, you get a, a, a sense of time and place just from those kids being there and a simple skip of a stone. And it's just a wonderful way to set your timeline. So um, just kind of, looking at the the film in sort of a wide lens in terms of Hosoda's directing and approach to this you know he this is one where he directed it but he didn't write it the um the the screenwriter uh is a woman by the name of Satoko Okudera and she's she's written quite a few things uh her her collaborations with Hosoda specifically are the girl who let through time and summer wars um, but she also, uh, she did The Princess and the Pilot, um, and, um, well, I guess she did, oh, okay, no, she got awards for The Girl Who Leapt Through Time and Summer Wars. She also wrote Wolf Children as well, and The Princess and the Pilot, and the live, uh, the live adaptation of Kiki's Delivery Service, so, um, and she's got a much bigger catalog of things she's done than that, but in terms of, of, especially, I guess, now since we have The Boy and the Beast and the other three sort of Hosoda original films. Um, where, where do you where do you think that affects his directorial style? Um, have you got well? First of all, have you guys both watched The Boy and the Beast? Uh, I'm afraid not. Um, okay. The UK release was kind of botched um, for it. Um, okay. Studio can Studio Canal picked up the rights and then promptly sat on them and didn't oh. do a theatrical and barely did a theatrical run um, outside of film festivals. And then they released it 
and then there was an error on the disc that meant it would sometimes cave out and crash oh. your player. Oh, so I, I kind of saw all that happening and took a back seat and said, when someone tells me this is all cool, I'll buy it. But until then, I'm leaving it alone. Oh, that's awesome. So I still, ha- I, I, I unfortunately have not watched it yet. Okay. Well. I, it's sitting in my house. Uh, my brother bought it during the Criterion sale where, where they announced it for a crazy low price. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, yeah, uh, it's sitting here and I've yet to watch it, but, uh, Without going into gory detail, then I guess what I'll say is the 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 boy of the beast he he wrote directed and and did the screenplay for that and the character designs I think also um, and that really you know I feel I feel like it's a different kind of movie a different it feels like a different movie because his fingerprints are so much more on it but uh, I guess. Let's let's look at just sort of the catalog of Hosoda's works that you guys have experienced, and do do you think that um, where where where's this one sit in terms of his overall experiences? I guess I guess this kind of is a backdoor way into getting into uh, uh, at impassionate K Corey's question uh, about where where this ranks. But what do you, what do you guys think? Ah, oh, the ranking of Hosoda's. Um, I mean, I haven't seen all of his work. Like I say, I haven't watched um, Boy and the Beast. Um, my podcast co-host for UK anime, like, talked about how, like, him doing both the writing and directing may have helped push some of his excesses, but I can't comment on that. But I know I trust Andy. Um, but I must admit, like, this film is still the number one film for me from Hasoda. It, I, this is a bit mean, perhaps, and I'm a bit, uh, you know, sort of single fan says stupid thing sort of level, but I feel like every single film that I've watched of his afterwards have been, like, always prefaced with the whole like well it's no girl who let through time but sure i'll take it like every other film like the, the other films i've watched have like boy in the like um, wolf children and summer wars i've always felt have had like one weird thing that's pulled it down like summer wars had the weird sort of weird like pseudo like almost like cultural nationalism to it like nippon banzai which i don't know i i maybe i was over egging it but i could not get into it i still have the blu-ray somewhere but i haven't watched it a second time and Wolf Children, I just couldn't kind of get emotionally invested in, even though I probably should because it involves children and single mothers. Like, come on, dude, have a heart. Um, but this is always the film for me has always been the like first Hoselda film I watched, knocked it out of the park, like made a big imprint on my heart. And since then, it's like, yeah, I'm kind of OK with this. This is my number one Hoselda film. So it's one of these things whenever a new Hoselda film is announced, I'm like, cool, I'll watch that. Maybe it will get up. Maybe it will measure up to this film somehow. <laughs> it, it is horrible to have your first film be your best, um, and that's and you know, obviously that's subjective. But uh, yeah, akin to what Elliot was saying, I measure every forthcoming sort of film to this, and I've only seen I think two more. I've seen Summer Wars and uh, Wolf Children, and. Wolf Children really should affect me more, seeing as I was raised by a single mother, and you know, with my brother, and it just—it never like I've seen it once, it doesn't resonate. Like there's something about the girl who left through time, just its execution, bar none, is just so bloody wonderful. It just sticks. It just makes that film stick in my head, uh, even though like we usually remember very little about it. Uh, <laughs> coming into this podcast, I remembered so little. And really enjoyed revisiting this uh, this anime and reloving it on, in earnest. Yeah, Summer Summer Wars has 
it, it always sticks in my head as this good action movie, and <clears throat> none of the real emotion, emotional aspects of that movie stick with me anymore. Wolf Children, I remember the story perfectly, but it really has no connection. But Girl Who Left Through Time just sort of seems to nail everything. I think for me now, this was this is all, this is the last film. This is a you know in a timey wimey wibbly wobbly kind of kind of way. This is the last Hosoda film or the latest Hosoda film I've seen, even though it's his first. Um, I think that I don't know that I would give it overall a number one myself. Um, I think The Boy and the Beast, in terms of its animation, like there's a, there's a pretty divided opinion about that film, but I I, I tend to like it. Um, I think in terms of its animation and and all of the things that I like from from an animation perspective about this film. Having seen this film now, I'm like, okay, so this is where he started figuring out how to do all of these things he does in his latest film so effectively. You know, I so from that perspective, I, I think it's a it's a it's a solid uh, freshman outing. Uh, from a story perspective, though. I do think this probably is the strongest of his stories um, that he's that he's brought to film because it's it's very tight uh, and it's very you know the, the the constraints that are laid down that we just went over um, really he he does a lot of things within those constraints that drive the effectiveness of the overall emotional impact of the film. Uh, and I think the the performance uh, by um, Risa Naka as Makoto is, you know, just amazing. I mean, I, you know, the the strength of the movie rides so heavily on on the delivery of Makoto as a character you wanna you wanna relate to and 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 care about, and she is a big part of that reason. That and the animate, like just the way she's drawn and animated, is such a there's, there's, there's such a, you know, I, I've been trying to put my thumb on it. I, I think with Hosoda, I get this sort of old Disney vibe out of what he does. Um, that may or may not be fair, but I just, I remember seeing some of like the sort of, I guess, uh, 70s Disney movies, um, like Robin Hood or, or, or Sword of the Stone, stuff like that. And there's something about the way he, he, how, something about the way he he does anime that seems evocative to me of that stuff. It's particularly present in Boy and the Beast, but but even just seeing her Makoto going like laughing and moving around and just all of that just had this kind of it just has this kind of uh, unique sort of quality to it that you don't see that much in anime. So. Um, you know, I think in in, a, in some ways that you guys, I, I do tend to agree with you guys in some ways that the girl who left through time is, from a story perspective, the strongest thing I think he's he's been a part of yet. To talk about the animation thing you touched on just then, it feels like, uh, and this is the thing that's popped in my head just now, but like it feels like there's a lot of very humane excess in the characters. Mm. Like you know, people will emote and they will go for it, and they will, you know, it's not just like a laugh. It's someone laughs and then they grab their side and they sort of rock back and forth and they like point at someone who looks annoyed they're being laughed at, and like it has all this human sort of expression that isn't codified and it isn't like a character trait or like a tick or something. It's just like here's this character laughing there we go and it's all bubbling over because it's a person not just like you know 
satan chan scene number 26 um but yeah i and also like so as a quick uh, a, a slightly mean question so where are we on the um tears countdown um i'll admit like i'm a big wuss and i every time i've watched this film i've come to sobbing at the very least um even watching it like seven times am i uh, uh, did, it, did, it, did this also drive you guys to tears i want to say am i alone <laughs> no i i i I, oh man so there were at least three points in the film where I tear up and you know one's the final not conf- not full on confession but that, that promise made uh, always gets me the uh, when Makoto realizes that um, I forget, that the uh, older judo-ish guy um, is going to meet his fate on the tracks as she did uh, sort of in her place at that moment, that realization and her worry always gets to me. Uh, there's just a lot of good points just choke me the heck up, and uh, yeah, Dude, this <laughs> there's was... no avoiding a tissue box. <laughs> yeah, this was a very moving film. Um, again, because of the the investiture that you have in these characters from an emotional standpoint, um, you know, when when not great things begin to happen. Uh, for them, it's uh, it's it, it has a very heavy impact, and um, that um, definitely affected me as well. And uh, I'm not afraid to say it. And you know, it's uh, the ending was the ending didn't really hit me nearly as hard as as the bit with um, uh, with Kosuke getting getting the bike and, and riding his riding his girlfriend down the hill that that was like oh man that that just about yeah. uh, that just about wrecked me yeah i feel like that scene for me kind of just bottles me up like i don't really tend to like re- like sort of release at that element but that's the part where i'm kind of you know kind of scrunching up my mouth and going mm, you know sort of you know so, <laughs> sort of raisining like turning into a raisin slightly in my seat if you want to have a rear mind image of a british dude with too much hair turning into a raisin um but no, like I, this film, especially like when you get like the first like sort of like uh, like forcibly aborted confession, it's like oh no, and then you kind I kind of get going there sometimes, but always at the end of the film when there's the release of like you know there's because like the film has like I don't know it's it, like it's you can't really call it a happy ending as such because that's too simple, but it has a natural ending to all that has happened before where you know there has to be a reckoning and a payment for all that's happened, and it just works so effortlessly. And it's just like, yep, yeah, here's how this is going to end. You might not, you might not have to like it, but this is how we have to move on as people. And it's just like, oh, woof, here I go. Um, you know, here come the waterworks type dealy. Mm-hmm. So that always, that always kicks me um, because it just feels like such a nice, like release and catharsis of like everything that's happened, and not like in a, yay, they shot the bad guy. It's like, oh. Oh my goodness! I'm free from it all, and I've and we've all learned and moved on, and oh man! So boof, off they get, off we go. Yeah. I wanted to ask if there was anything, any any point of the film that actually bugged either of you, a, a sticking point, something that didn't seem right or that never got hashed out like you wanted it to. The fact that she I mean, was always conveniently in the clothes she needed to be in, but that's a very nitpicky thing. I think I think that kind of works out because when she jumps back, she actually just re-inhabits her own body, but then she rolls over. Yeah. So that's why she's in the right clothes. I just kind of like airbrushed that away from my head um, at one point. Um, I mean, at some point when you when you look back over it, um, 
one of the characters one so one of the secondary characters is in fact like a time traveler real deal um and like trying to figure out post fact like or post film like what he knows at what point gets a bit sticky but that's only for starting to try and analyze it um in the heat of the film you can kind of just let it go which is probably the safer way to deal with it really i i had a i had issue with the the future world from which that time traveler comes because it's sort of implied that it's you know everything crumbles like it's just this desolate wasteland of a world like yeah. there's no baseball this specific painting doesn't exist which exemplifies hope <laughs> it's like good god what happened <laughs> I, li- so- I like to i like i always like to think of that bit as like a weirdly hopeful thing maybe i'm being naive but i always like to imagine that as being like almost like a weird warning to the past of like hey you can still fix this so mm-hmm. you know because they've shown that like although the timeline has certain things that are non-negotiable um, like there is some leeway in how you can change things that's why i quite like the idea of like like the whole point of the last scene is makoto saying hey I will find a way to make this a world when this painting continues to exist. And so you can see it in the future, which is like the most weird roundabout confession you can have. Yeah. Um, <laughs> notice my painting senpai. Um, but, oh, sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Uh, she, she basically becomes Sarah Connor. The end. Yeah. But <laughs> le- but with less um, coffee and full of guns, which, you know, plus minus. Yeah. Um, but no, I always liked that. I always liked there was. I always felt there was a bit of latent hope in that scene of like, hey, it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, so you know, maybe it's just me trying to grab onto nice things at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I did think a bit about, the, especially the first time I watched the film. I did think a bit about what Chiaki was was saying with respect to his, to where he comes from, and thinking, good lord, like that's a really heavy thing to drop into a very, you know, hopeful, youthful kind of. I, I overall overall optimistic film um and it was a little jarring for me emotionally i guess at the time but uh i think that made for more of an impact down the road for me it kind of represented something they were trying too hard to do like why does this time travel device actually have to have some sort of purpose like that's not part of this film um the film is all you know I mean, it gives reason for why he would want to escape back to the past, but that's about it. And literally, he could want to escape back to the past for any given reason at all. But, you know, trying to legitimize that future just sort of felt fake to me. And oh. Luckily, it's only, like, in the last five minutes of the movie or whatever, so it's not any huge deal, but it's, it's just it's that one little thing that, you know, keeps mm. coming back in my mind when I think on this. Also... I- why is his time travel device a, a walnut? Because it's rad. I was about to get to that. <laughs> so I think that's a really p- smart piece of like visual just panache in the film where the whole point of it being a walnut leads up to him touching it slightly and it falling apart. Like that is the entire reason why that thing is a walnut because it's a really powerful visual image to tap it and just it cracks apart, mm-hmm. which is great. I think that's a really smart piece of powerful like visual just like it takes two frames. You just duke and off it goes. And it's yeah. like, yep, here we go. Although, again, when you first see it, you're like, what? But, I mean, like, I will agree, like, the one thing, I, uh, to, to your point, Inc., I think the one thing that saves it from the whole, like, you time-traveled for a painting bit is the fact that, like, very quickly he says, I meant to come back in time, see the painting, and get the hell out of Dodge. But then he says, but I came to school, met you lot, and I was just enjoying hanging out. And that's what kind of saves it from like you know furrowed brow you what sort of territory because it's like no no 
like I came back for a painting, but within like five minutes, I forgot all about that. And that's where things got messy. Because so in I think... wasteland of a world, friendship no longer exists. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll admit some of that, some of that speech goes a wee bit gnarly. Um, <laughs> It sounds like it sounds like he came from a world of like Arthur C. Clarke's weird dystopia or something. It's like, oh, we, li- we all live in pods. It's like that sounds gross. It's rad. No, that sounds awful. What are you doing, Arthur C. Clarke? Um, We've got chestnut time traveling devices. What do you got? That, <laughs> Baseball. That, that, mon- that montage where they they show Chiaki like meeting Makoto and uh, uh, Kosuke and and like getting like learning how to ride a bike and like all these. I mean, it, it blazes through it really fast, but I, f- I, f- I felt like that was such an emotionally powerful little uh, montage of, of, of shots. It's great because you, you look at them when they first you first see the characters, you're like, man, this is like a freaking odd couple group of characters who you'd only see in anime, and then it justifies their weird friendship very quickly. It's just like, yeah, they they all got on, and Banzai, you know, like, mm-hmm. look at these idiots. So, yeah, that really helps. Should we uh, do Twitter questions? I think so, unless anyone else has anything to really want to say about the movie. I think I'm about... Oh, one thing I wanted to mention, this is more of a like little thing I found out about literally half an hour ago, well, an hour and a half ago, is that apparently there's a manga adaptation of this movie, which changes some plot elements, hmm. um, but it's only been released in English in Australia. <laughs> so what? <laughs> but I, I kind of now want to find this and see what the hell they changed. Just to just to know what's going on. Those Australians the, like, get everything. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Tell me about it. But like, there's a single screenshot of it on Wikipedia, and it looks real weird and ropey. So it's like, oh man, I appreciate the film even more now. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that we dodged a bullet with that one. Maybe. Maybe yeah. It's like when you get like, it's like when you get the manga adaptation of films. And you're like, woof. What do you do? What is this? Did did Hos- do you know if Hosoda's the one who actually did the manga? I don't believe so. I think it was a third party, um, oh. but I can't say for definitive. Um, my, I can't get Wikipedia up for some reason. That, <laughs> my internet's you know, gone funny. That could explain uh, why he does his own manga now. <laughs> hey, it's not a bad idea. I mean, hell, like, look at Shinkai. Like, that's a second revenue stream for that dude. Yeah. Although not, like he, not like he needs it right now. But hey. So I wanted to mention actually. Um, I like I like little narrative elements placed throughout the film that are they're always in the background. But the best best one is early on in the film when the TV's on in the background. And they're just sort of doing that morning news show th- thing, and they it's mention a nice that. Day. But, uh, well, that, but it's uh, an anniversary of when Japan adapted Standard Time. Uh, it was mm-hmm. in, in 1886, and immediately just throws time, uh, the very concept of time, into the movie because now it's you know it's a nation adapting to a set of times, so everything's arbitrary. So it it automatically sets up and very nicely and subtly. So the fact that we really define time, mm. we um, impose our own order on it to try and make sense of it, so we don't all go mad. Exactly. Um, and then, yeah, it's really smart because like I think it'll be so easy for another character to go. By the way, like I am side character Chan. What is time? And it's like what? What is this? Get out of my face. Let's just have a nice day. Ha ha. Another nice uh, touch is the um, the whole red string of fate thing that you know, kind of leads into the movie. You see the big bright red line and then it, you zoom in and it's, it's individual like slices of time. And you see it kind of all through the movie as, as she's, you know, leaping through time and, and it, it brings up the, the, the time honored question of, you know, can you change fate and can, can you, 
be in control of your own destiny and and I think it I think it gives you kind of a couple of different takes at answering that question. Uh, I think you can you can kind of come to different interpretations based on you know where you kind of look at it in the movie. You know, obviously the fact that she's able to 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 wind things up in a way that that you know ends up being a better a better kind of beginning state than where she started uh, is 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 good but then on the other hand you know by the end of the movie she's kind of starting over so you don't really know if she's going to be able to to change fate or not like maybe she gets on that bike and something else happens and causes her to you know have a conversation with that train i you know who knows i mean man i love conversations with trains they're usually very angry they're the best No, I, I, I think I mentioned um, a bit before, but I feel like the, the end of the film is hopeful in a weird way because, like, you are back to the steady state where, like, you know, they've lost, um, they've lost one of the main characters, and instead you have like, like the like shy girl who is now going out with, um, what's his face, um, Kosuke, mm-hmm. which is a great little bit, but I feel like the whole point of the film is like she's lost something very dear. And but the whole time that all that occurred in a in a closed loop, and now she's able to move forward, like as a stronger person in total. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I always felt the film was kind of hopeful at the end. Well, and two, she kind of, I mean, if you compare, you know, the original state to the ending state, she gets another shot at life too. <laughs> I mean, I guess yeah. that's well, kind yeah, of, she, that's hopeful. <laughs> outside of the like does not die section, there's also the very clear section of like like is now awake to what she wants to do. Whereas right. the start of the film, it's just like, I'm okay. I'm bumbling around. Here's a montage of me bumbling around. <laughs> and then at the end of it, it's like, nah, I've, I didn't get what I, I wanted to out of this situation, but I'm going to damn well do what I can now. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, there we go. So yeah, it's grand time. I feel like we're answering half the Twitter questions about actually mentioning what they are first. So, <laughs> so uh, I guess we kind of answered, uh, Corey's question, uh, right right off of the bat um which it was shameless plug for Corey. uh ink and i were just recently on his podcast talking about uh anime of the year from last year go check that out and go check out taiku podcast because uh, they're great so but yeah yeah he he asked where does it rank among the hasodas and we we kind of answered that aya kaya has three like well two like very deep philosophical questions which which you know We'll have to try to keep within an hour, I guess. Uh, and then she's got uh, a third one. Let's let's tackle that one first. About uh, she never understood the last scene of the movie. And uh, would you mind explaining what occurred? You you didn't pronounce the emojis right. Oh, uh, girl and bicycle. <laughs> dot emoji. Dot exe. So the very last scene is is that what before or after they're throwing catchable as a new group? I can't remember. Well, yeah, I mean, the very last scene is they're throwing they're throwing catch ball with shy girl and her two very excellent wing ladies. Um, <laughs> they're great. I wish they had that. They're amazing. <laughs> um, that's the very very last scene. Then, so we could talk about that. I think we just did. You know, she's Makoto is more hopeful for the future and and you know knows what she wants to do. Um, she's more but, empowered too. Yeah, more empowered. Uh, the scene before that where Chiaki comes back and he says, you know, uh, I forget what tender thing he says, but she, she's, she's going to run to the future to where he's waiting for or something. Um, I mean, he goes back to the future. So maybe it's just that very, very last scene. 
I don't know. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I just, I feel like we kind of have touched on this a few times in this conversation, but like, I feel it is a case of like, you know, th- there's not everything works out like you imagined. Like, hey, lover boy, after she finally gets over herself and actually accepts him, um, he has to go away. And like, you never know quite where, how far in the future he comes from or if like changes that get made actually erase him from timeline, which is always a spooky thing to think about in those sort mm. of weird like star-crossed time travel lovers things of like whoops i made my boyfriend not exist by doing something <laughs> I, I, oh, what, well what, what if he's like 70 years old right now and that's the other th- yeah well that's also the other weird thing where it's like wait by the time you get to his age he's gonna be the same and you'll be like older that then gets to like you know other another film's worth of con- confusing storyline questions there was sort uh, of a throwaway line by the 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 auntie witch where she says, you know, she waited for her, her guy to come back and he never did. And I was kind of like, when, when that all kind of went down at the end of the movie, I was like, Oh, <laughs> cause I immediately kind of leapt back to that and thought, Oh man. Uh, yeah. I feel it. I think it's more to do with the fact that like, it's a very bittersweet thing of like, yeah, this probably won't actually really happen, but there is someone who loved you. Maybe that's a bit too sort of like, take what you can get type dealy. No, that's right case, out of it. Yeah, it's like you know, like it won't all work out, but you got you got to take what you can get out of this situation, which is someone did love you, you messed it up, but know that there is someone who found who like believed in you, even if you were a goofus. So, <laughs> and that, that that speaks to the the natural uh, way this film portrays you know young love, because that's what this is. It's just a young love story. It just has you know that supernatural time traveling element in it, but uh, yeah. So her uh, her remaining two questions are fairly interrelated, and maybe we could maybe we could kind of combine them and, and answer them that way. So she first asks, uh, if you can leap through time, what time periods in your life would you want to leap to? And then if you were in the main character's position, uh, what would you try to change about your life? Have you not watched time travel movies? Never travel back in time. Deal with the time you're in. That's it. Yeah, I think if I feel like my sort of pithy response to that is I would go back to all moments at all times and whack myself around the back of the head. Um, <laughs> so British. Which is, yeah, it's kind of the like, oh, man, like, because, yeah, like, I, you know, like, I don't know. I'm guessing everyone has a thing where, like, you remember something keenly embarrassing from your past and go and sort of cringe up for a good minute. Um, but, like, it's not like I'm going to get rid of those things because how are you going to stop it? So. Plus, I don't know. I, they do you. Yeah, I mean, like, I'd I'd like to have perfect recall of events I enjoyed, where I could just inhabit myself and experience things again. But I wouldn't, I couldn't really imagine changing anything because, like, like Ink said, time travel stories teach you not to do that. Um, and it, you know, it also be really bizarre to go back in time and know things outside of the pithy sort of like go and play the stock market so I can become a hilarious, feckless billionaire um, and use that to fund charity or something. I don't know. Like forced time travel philanthropy or something. The the Elliot Page going back in time and whacking himself on the back of the head montage I just got was pretty amusing. Um, Especially if you imagine him as a wrinkled up raisin. (laughs) Yeah. Lots of hair. That would be one of the times. Yeah, just imagine me, except six, and belching in front of his entire school class, and then me appearing now and whacking myself around the back of the head, and that's basically <laughs> the entire montage. Uh. I, I think for me, um, kind of kind of similar to how you mentioned, Elliot, um, I, I wouldn't want to, 
I would want to experience my past as sort of the, like the way you flip through a photo book or something, um, which I guess that's what they make photo books for. But, you know, just to kind of be an observer, you know, an invisible observer in it and just sort of watch the moment happen again or, you know, watch watch certain things happen again or, or experience certain things that way so I could so I could remember them in, in that clear kind of way because uh, time does does devilish things to your memory, as we all know. But um, I, I don't I wouldn't want to I, w- I wouldn't want to go back and, and inhabit myself in, in kind of that sort of, you know, girl who let through time way. Um, nah, nah, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to mess with anything, you know, like I am who I am now and I'm okay with that. I mean, if, if so, we, if we let through time, we could like screw things up and not have this podcast. That would be, that would be terrible. <laughs> like, no man, I could save myself a lot of money in audio equipment I bought when I first started podcasting <laughs> and I bought real stupid stuff. That would, I'd be, I'd be a hundred, I'd be, a, I'd be 400 pounds better off, um, but whatever. <laughs> Uh, and to bring it to the characters in the story, uh, the, the similar question from Ayakaya was, and if you were in the main character's position, what would you try to change about your life? I wouldn't want to be hit by a train. Yeah, totally. That is a very good thing. <laughs> the one thing, just as a quick side note, the one thing that's kind of hitting me more and more as we kind of discuss the film, like in this depth, is just like, imagine like imagine being one like imagine being like the secondary like male character judo dude um kosuke you know doctor like straight man like imagine like you don't even know the fact that your friend has been messing with the the living buggery out of your love life um (laughs) for what must have been the last like six months of her perceptive time like just think about that like imagine that Imagine if you got drunk one day and she said, yeah, you remember your wife? Yeah, I helped you get with her. I had to jump back through time 16 times. It's like, what? <laughs> what do you, what? Like, imagine how weird that would be. Um, yeah. Because yeah. then that calls into, calls into question, like, well, was that a natural thing or was that fostered? How real is this? Now I'm going to divorce her. Thanks, friend. <laughs> well, you yeah. know. Well, it... then, no, then, then, then her wing buddies would turn up and whack everyone, and that would be another film. <laughs> Returning back uh... to the whole fate thing, you know, Makoto got the freedom to sort of determine her own, but as you know, in the course of doing that, she pretty much set Kosuke's for him, you know, mm. and took away his his freedom. That's yeah, interesting. Um, what about you, Jared? What would you change if you were the main character? God, nothing. I mean, you know, the it it's easy to look back on things, and this is you know particularly timely for me because today I tur- I. I turned 37 today, and, um, you know, I'm in a retrospective kind of frame of mind, and I, I don't think I would change anything. I mean, that's – it would destroy me. Like, like your part of your identity is, is all of the experiences that have shaped you and, and, and experiences you've had that have molded you into who you are. So, you know, it would be sort of a – It'd be sort of a, a, a kind of suicide in a way, I think, to go back and like change things. And you know, the the time the time honored lesson that that movies like this and programs like say Quantum Leap or other well, Quantum Leap's actually a counterexample, so scratch that. Um, but you know, time travel is often about you know when you go back in time and you muck up the past, you actually do more harm than good. And I think I, I'm very firmly in that camp. So. Uh, no, no time travel for me. I'm, I'm good. I have the perfect answer to this. Oh, perfect. 
because it doesn't really change anything except for maybe a little bit of bonding or the strength of the bonding. But I would go back and eliminate nine out of those ten hours of karaoke. Because <laughs> you only Actually, need one. Thinking about it, if I went, if I if I was in the film character, if I was in Makoto's position, I'd find a way to like go back in time and apologize to the little sister, um, who like is a little annoying sister, but at the same time kind of gets a lot dumped on her constantly. <laughs> okay. Oh my God, her, 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 you know, don't do it. Don't jump thing at the beginning. Sounds right. <laughs> so if I'm Makoto, so, so the way I answered that question before, I guess, was like thinking about me being able to do the same thing the main character could. Like thinking about me, like if I was Makoto, like I'd probably just go eat the pudding like a whole bunch. <laughs> See, the reason I said she should conserve her karaoke things is so she could actually conserve her time leaps. Because if she hadn't gone back so many times to do the uh, karaoke, she'd still have a whole bunch of options left. That's well, the thing is, there's no self-interaction in this time travel model, like because you're becoming the character you were at that time. True. So you can't, you never actually meet yourself. Mm. So that's the one. I think that's the one thing this film does away with very nicely in time travel, like like setup is it doesn't actually ever mean that they're ever going to meet themselves so that's probably the one nice hallmark of this time travel paradigm well yeah, knowingly sorry. anyway because she does actually meet herself which calls into question you know if she goes back one final time because she's older when she meets her younger self because she is auntie witch right no 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 no, no. no she's no, not. auntie witch auntie witch is an entirely separate character yeah oh, okay. um I Auntie totally Witch, so yeah. So this is a bit of a weird jump. I mentioned Auntie Witch again, but I feel one of the things that really helped this film, um, back to talking about Hasoda's work and writing, is that this is a pseudo adaptation. Like as we say, it's a it's a pseudo sequel to mm-hmm. the book of the same name, yeah. which I think really helps it and gives it very close bounds. Where it says we already have a rule set set for this film. There's no need to explore it or expand on it. We can just use this rule set and make a film out of it. Um, but yeah, the fact that you have Auntie Witch there, who is like the massive signpost and warning sign, um, even though she doesn't come out and say it all because that's what you got to do as a wise, like, you know, master. Um, it really helps. Yeah. Hmm. Um. I, yeah. I would just go back and eat more pudding, and I would roll. I would. I would. I would do like rolls into like all. Of, I wish I could do that right now. I wish I could just make an entrance into any room by just rolling like a perfect little ball and then springing up. Like that's the best thing. If, if I was in the film's actually, if I was in the film, I'd wear a hat. I'd wear a like a friggin' like um, helmet <laughs> to try and lessen the mental the head trauma. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> so, any other closing thoughts on the film or anything? Watch it. Still, still love it. Like, and also, like one of the things about this film is that I don't know how it is in the US, but at least in the UK, you can get it as a double pack with um, Summer Wars for like six quid. So on Blu-ray even. So there's kind of no excuse. So oh, man. I paid I probably paid thirty US quid for mine. It was it was not cool. <laughs> Please don't say US quid. That's not weird. <laughs> um, oh my goodness. But no, like in the the sadly it's a different Blu-ray um, region over here. But like yeah, like it's pretty handy having it available for six pounds. I don't actually let me double check that before I make people upset. So six pounds is pretty. That's a that's a really good deal for both yeah. of those. Um, yeah, Funimation just released it on Blu-ray last year or 2015, uh, and I, I picked it up at Otakon either the pa- this past year or the one before, uh, and I, I remember paying uh, a, a lot more than than six pounds, which is probably 
eight or nine bucks here. Mm. Okay, yeah, the Blu-ray is still available for a fiver on its own. Um, also, apparently, the manga is actually out on Kindle. Wow, I should do more research before I do podcasts, says Elliot Page. Whoops. Hey, you just Man. did more research than I did. <laughs> the paperback version is being price gouged for £80 secondhand. Woof. Wow. So, yeah. Anyway, sorry, complete tangent. <laughs> no worries. Um, Ink, you got any other closing thoughts on the film? No, it's it's one that's really great to revisit. No, well, actually, yeah, okay. It's, it's it's got multiple. It's got rewatch value up the ang just because not only the little background story elements you may miss uh, going through, but it's just a genuinely good movie to connect with personally. Mm. And like a couple of uh, you have said, you know, it just actually makes you think uh, a little more than most common anime. Yeah, mm. it's really heartfelt in a weird way like it's really kind of like earnest and human in the like you know as i mentioned as i mentioned multiple times and before like um like the first reaction when she gets powers is to mess around with them saying fierce and it's like yeah of course like what mm. are you gonna do mm. you know and that's what makes it fun it's just and how the you know it lays everything out for you very carefully it's really yeah it's a beautiful film but as i say like i've watched it like seven eight times now and it still works marvelously anyway elliot uh tell all of our lovely listeners where they can find more elliot page Hi, uh, cool. Um, I also do a normal podcast for the UK Anime Network, um, which you can find their Twitter feed at UK Anime. We have two um, fortnightly. We have a we have a fortnightly live show where we have like a chat hosting with us, so you can yell at me in real time as well as recorded podcasts. Um, I'm on Twitter as at Elliot Page, um, two L's, one T. Um, and the other thing I mostly work on is something I need to do more for the US for, quite honestly, is a thing called Manga Search uh, at mangasur.ch, um, which is a online legal manga search engine, so you can find where ma- digital manga is um, and hopefully maybe buy some. I don't know. Um, I will be honest, it's mostly UK-focused at the moment because that's where I live. I need to fix and update the US-facing like search uh, database for it, which is really on my... cool project, man. It's on my docket, yeah. It's This is one of these things where you get so annoyed at the state of things. You go, well, I guess I'd better do something then, and I did. Um, and if I show anyone my back-end code for it, they will probably punch me and faint because it's so bad. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm hoping to show Evan that at some point so he can laugh at me again. Well, I, um, I really look forward to, to that coming uh, and being, uh, I guess, uh, tooled up for the States some more. Yeah. I would love to have a tool like that. There is a there is a US data set there now, but it is approximately seven months old and incomplete. So mm. you can see it there, but it ain't going to work very well. Um, as an apology, but yeah, that's where you'll find me. All right, and you're um. I'll, let me plug uh, UK Anime Podcast. Um, y'all's <laughs> recent uh, look at the winter season uh, was really good. I I really enjoyed listening to that. Uh, just the other day, actually. Oh, thank you. Very kind. It was actually one of the best podcasts I, I heard of the uh, the season wrap ups. It, it had it had me on the floor rolling like most of the time. <laughs> Just the amount of tension and hate in the room. <laughs> oh man, I we we get through we get through it okay. You know, <laughs> we have we have. I will admit, like Dan, one of my co-hosts, who comes on for those wrap ups, he watches a lot of stuff, and we we don't have the same opinions on things, but he totally sees things in a different light. That's really valuable in these discussions. Mm-hmm. So it's really helpful to have that. Uh, 
even though I know that come the end of the year, we're going to be like punching each other because he doesn't like anything that I'm really hot on for <laughs> NDV awards already. So look forward to GBH, I guess, on the podcast. <laughs> Ink, where can people find you on the Internet and elsewhere? Right, right here, old Taco No Radio. Uh, it's a wonderful podcast on anagamers.com. Uh, you can, I edit stuff other writers contribute and uh, also uh, manage the three episode test column, which just popped up a couple weeks ago. Uh, so you know what to watch or not watch based on how much you trust individual reviewers at Anagamers. Uh, you can also find me on fandompost.com. Uh, I do articles like 10 years later and uh, uh, other reviews. And also in the pages of Otaku US Magazine, where Otaku USA Magazine, where uh, I think the last issue I had, uh, I got, I actually got the cover with Yuri on Ice. Um, I got uh, and two reviews, uh, one on Keijo, and one on To Be Hero. Uh, Man, To Be Hero! I started watching it, never finished it. I how? Finish. I don't know. That. I, I, I got caught up in other sort of podcasting duties and it fell by the wayside. It's still in my Crunchyroll queue, oh, I swear. I swear. It's, it's so great. And it's a oh. short. And it's Nabishin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's it's so good, man. Definitely, definitely finish that. And on cool. Twitter, you can find me at Animated Inc. And that's about it. Jared? Uh, well, uh, Otaku No Radio, of course. Anti-Gamers, of course. Um... Let's see what else. I also am a contributor to Wave Motion Cannon blog, which is at Wave Motion Cannon or WaveMotionCannon.com. Um, we are doing our weekly reviews where pretty much almost the entire staff writes about the same. Uh, we have two anime that we write about. This this season's anime are Scum's Wish and Dragon uh, Dragon Maid. So you know, talk about two very different shows. Um, so please, uh, please look forward to those week to week. Um, we've got our uh, colossal end of the uh, 2016 year in review uh, award podcast uh, forthcoming. Uh, and uh, other than that, that's uh, that's about it for me right now. And where can we find Otakuno Radio aside from iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Google Music? Those are all the places that you can find and add our podcast or listen to our podcast and then of course you can also follow us on twitter at at old taco no radio <laughs> don't forget to listen to the original anime gamers podcast hosted by uh, evan minto and david estrella it's a fantastic one oh, the, the bad, recent one is really things. good they have the fast karate people on there and it's excellent oh, it's like all my childhood podcast all they need to do is add, also invite anime world order it's all my childhood podcasts crashing into each other <laughs> that actually comes up <laughs> Yeah. Man, like that was that was like not to be too weird about it, but like that was my entire sort of like eight, 17, 18 year old years when I was listening to Fast Karate and AWO and like working a warehouse job to get money for uni. Man, oh, sorry, just compl- that's what I go back. I'd go back in time and I'd listen to all those podcasts again <laughs> as they were coming out, and as I had a real dumb podunk job. That's it for. This episode of Otaku No Radio, I want to thank Elliot Page for coming on. It's been fantastic to talk with you again, man. 
Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. And, and thank you for getting up so early to accommodate me. Thanks to time zones. No, it's it's our pleasure to have, have you on. And, and we could not have chosen a better uh, first person to break in our brand spanking new uh, guest host chair. So you're welcome back anytime. <laughs> you might want to get the casters fixed. I've been rolling around on them quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, come back next month. We'll be doing an episode on Samurai Jack in preparation for the release of the final season uh, with another special guest, Kate of Reverse Thieves. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Bye. This is where we test Jared's editing skills. <laughs> oh, shit. How do you feel about feet? I'm, I'm okay with feet. Yeah. This, is, this, is this is highly efficient and also silly. <laughs> <laughs> that is old talking over radio.